0: to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reed Wood. On today's podcast, we're discussing the brand new television series, Our Flag Means Death. If you haven't seen it, Our Flag Means Death is about pirates in the early 18th century. If you don't want to hear spoilers, stop listening now because we're going to discuss the plot of the entire season. Okay, spoiler warning is officially in effect. The primary story arc follows Steed Bonnet, a landed gentleman who abandons his comfortable lifestyle and family to become a pirate. Unfortunately for Steed, he's not very good at piracy, which leads to some misadventures. Steed eventually meets up with Blackbeard, and the two develop a romantic relationship. So the show evolves from being mainly a comedy into a romantic comedy over the course of the season. As you may or may not know, Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard were both real historical figures. Today we dig into the history behind the show. How does the show challenge assumptions about gender and sexuality in the 18th century Caribbean? how did race and slavery historically relate to piracy, and how does the show depict those subjects? And we often think of the late 17th and early 18th centuries as the golden age of piracy. What caused this period to begin and why did it come to an end? To discuss all this with me and more, I'm joined by Chris Baldwin. Chris is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto whose research focuses on privateering race and slavery in the Caribbean during this period. He also recently taught a course on the history of piracy. We've got a great episode today, so let's get into it. I'd like to welcome to the podcast a friend of mine from the University of Toronto, Chris Baldwin. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Lewis. Could you uh, introduce yourself to the listeners and, and tell us about what your historical interests are? Sure. So I'm a PhD candidate
1: at the University of Toronto, like Lewis, and I work primarily on slavery and warfare in the 18th century Caribbean. I have taught a little bit about piracy, so it often comes up in my research, questions about piracy, and often when I'm explaining people who are... Sort of outside the discipline of history, what I do for my research is often simplified to study, to saying I say piracy and slavery in the 18th century Atlantic world. I, I work primarily with privateers. A privateer is a privately owned, so it's owned usually by some kind of merchant on land. It's a, a ship that's owned by a powerful, wealthy merchant on land. And he'll pay for all the guns, all the food, all the, you know, tackle and he'll hire a captain to lead his crew in times of war to attack enemy shipping. So often privateers, they'll have a special license, often called a letter of Mark, yeah. that's signed by the local governor and it, their activities are completely legal, but they can only attack ships that are owned by the enemies of their country. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time reading about privateers and a lot of times, and I think this is a bit of a false dichotomy, but a lot of the time, privateers are treated a lot like pirates. And I think there are, of course, similarities, but there are important differences. Very
0: interesting topic. How did you become interested in in these themes for your dissertation?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I certainly did not start out my PhD thinking I would do anything like this. In fact, I I started my PhD thinking I'd be working on drinking culture in 17th century England. Hmm. However, I increasingly felt that I wanted to do a project that encompassed more of an Atlantic world approach in part because I'm from Atlantic Canada and I wanted to do a history that kind of spoke to that and at one point a supervisor suggested that I look at privateering as a as an avenue to investigate this sort of Atlantic world right And one thing that I realized was that this world of maritime warfare, so not just piracy, but privateering, the Royal Navy, produced an awful lot of paperwork. And for historians, paperwork is often where we find some of the most interesting stuff. Even though it's on the surface, it can be quite boring. It often can tell a more intricate and complex story. And what I found when I began to dig into some of the records, especially at the National Archives in England, of the sort of world of maritime warfare in the Atlantic world in the 18th century was an increasing number of sailors of African descent. So black sailors were being captured by British warships and were, instead of being treated as prisoners of war, so if they captured white French sailors, for instance, these, these sailors should be treated as prisoners of war. However, if, if the Royal Navy or a privateer captured black sailors, they were almost always sold as slaves. So you have these records from cases in Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, Bermuda, and other British Caribbean colonies in which privateers and Royal Navy warships are selling Black war captives as slaves. So that's sort of the the focus of my my dissertation and my research.
0: That's really interesting and I think really important for people to, to know more about. You know, there's a lot of popular media about history of piracy, history of private hearing, and to my knowledge, slavery does not come up in basically any of it, including the show we're going to talk about today. It doesn't really come up. We'll get to that a little bit later. But before we get into Our Flag Means Death, I want to talk more about the genre of comedy as a way to talk about history. This is the first time on the podcast that I've covered a comedic portrayal of history. And I think that this genre is becoming more popular. You know, we think of shows like Drunk History, movies like The Great. I I think Bridgerton is partly a comedy. I haven't actually watched it yet, but that's my understanding. Why do you think these shows are becoming increasingly popular? And what do you think some of the strengths and weaknesses are of using comedy as a way to talk about history? Or, Or perhaps what are the strengths of history as a way to be funny?
1: I think, that's, I think that's a good way of framing it. I mean, Louis, you're a historian, right? You, I'm sure you've mm-hmm. watched plenty of movies that are sort of serious dramas or whatever. And you, you tend to look at it as a historian and you say, oh, well, it's, it's so hard to fight that temptation to say, well, that's not accurate or that's not accurate or that's not accurate or that doesn't capture this essence of, of the period. I find it's a lot harder to do that with a comedy. The genre sort of resists our attempts to kind of impose to, to impose our sort of our demands for historical accuracy, for instance, or our desire to sort of tease out anachronism because it's supposed to be ridiculous, right? We're not supposed to take it seriously. So I think I think that actually opens up a lot of opportunities to discuss history and discuss the past that can sort of steer us away from this historical drama as a genre because one thing that becomes a problem with a lot of historical dramas is and i, I you work in the, the civil war right lewis
0: yeah yeah sort of 19th century u.s history yeah the civil war era yeah
1: well so so i think it's something like lincoln that's a that's a period that's portrayed a lot in film right and when hollywood tries to portray the past a lot of the time they're doing just enough to make it historically relevant or historically based in some way but they're often they're doing just enough to make it historically based but will often depart from how the story might actually be relevant or how it may maybe a better way of telling it for the sake of sort of appealing mm-hmm. to audiences so with a comedy you don't really have that historical basis the historical basis is supposed to be absurd right so you can have these characters who are in the past, but are acting as though, are acting like we would act. And that allows you to tell a completely different kind of story, right? And I think that that opens up a whole lot of interesting possibilities.
0: I think that all makes sense and I agree with that. My comment about this was going to be that I think historical comedies are sort of playing with our expectations of historical accuracy, which is was essentially your point. I think history is also an opportunity for Hollywood, or, or whoever's making it, it's not always Hollywood, but to, to do something funny, because I think people's expectations for historical media is serious, or at least sometimes it's like a, an action movie or something, but it's not usually funny. And so to take something like a show about pirates, but make it goofy, is sort of, subverting your expectations for what pirates are like. And I think that that, that's very appealing to a lot of people, especially these days. Today we're talking about the new series from 2022, Our Flag Means Death. And for listeners who haven't seen the show, let's give a brief rundown of the plot of the show. So this is spoilers. If you want to watch the show yourself, I'm going to spoil the whole season right now, (laughs) briefly. (laughs) So... Steed Bonnet is the protagonist in in 1717. Steed Bonnet was a, a real pirate and in the show his thing is that he he's a aristocratic, wealthy, landed gentleman who gets tired of his comfortable life sort of yearns for some adventure and he abandons his family to become a pirate. And he's not a very good pirate. <laughs> Steed is played by Rhys Darby, who, if anybody here has ever watched Flight of the Concords, he's in that as well as, as the band manager, Murray. And he's basically just, the at least start of the show, the same character, I feel like, almost, where instead of being a, a goofy band manager, he's a goofy pirate captain. You know, his thing is he, he talks about having a people-positive management style. He reads the crew bedtime stories. He's very squeamish about violence, all this sort of stuff. And so he is sort of sailing around the Caribbean, having some misadventures, not doing a very good job as a pirate. Eventually, he meets Blackbeard, who is played by Taika Waititi. And they start this relationship where Blackbeard is teaching Steed some stuff about how to be a pirate. Steed is teaching Blackbeard some stuff about, you know, how to be more in touch with your feelings, how to be gentler and kinder that sort of stuff. And eventually Blackbeard and Steed are growing closer and closer and they fall in love. And they end up captured by the British and they're essentially sent to what was it? It's like a prison or like a pirate reeducation center or something silly like that. And they have this plan to escape the prison island together, but Steed still feels guilty about kind of abandoning his family. And instead of escaping with Blackbeard, escapes to his family. And Blackbeard feels very abandoned. So Blackbeard goes off and and returns to his violent, angry ways, discarding everything that reminds him of Steed, including Steed's crew, who he maroons on an island. And Steed goes off to meet his family again and when he gets there discovers that they're actually having a much better life without him his wife is much happier his children have kind of moved on and steed kind of accepts that he no longer belongs there and he fakes his own death and decides to return to the life of piracy he, so he's trying to return to to blackbeard and his crew not knowing that blackbeard has abandoned his crew and the last moment of the season is him in a rowboat sort of paddling up to the island where his crew's been marooned. And that's kind of where the series leads off. It's, it's kind of a sad ending because Blackbeard feels very betrayed. And there's sort of a miscommunication between them. But it's clearly setting up for for a second season. So it's a romantic comedy. It starts off more comedy and increasingly towards the end of the season, I think, becomes more romantic.
1: Do you have anything you want to add to that? No, I think that's a great great synopsis of the show, playing with these sort of very famous historical pirates.
0: Yes. I feel like everybody's heard of Blackbeard. Probably a lot of people have heard of Steve Bonnet. They're both obviously real real historical figures. I think Jack Rackham is in it for an episode as well. Although that that's less obvious that he was a real real person, I think. Anyway, there are a lot of pieces of popular media about pirates, and there are some classic pirate tropes. You know, you think of things like Treasure Island, Pirates of the Caribbean, obviously our flag means death, and a lot of them have some recurring themes. Following a treasure map and searching for buried treasure, getting captured by indigenous people on a a Caribbean island, mutinying and marooning, getting scurvy, etc. I wanted to ask you, where do these tropes come from? Why do they stick around so much? And, you know, we don't have time to go through them all, but are there some that you want to especially comment on as being maybe not historically accurate, or maybe some have some basis in history that you want to share.
1: Well, I mean, (laughs) so scurvy, for instance, disease Mm -hmm. was certainly real. That was very, very real. Is it the Swede whose teeth start falling out and everyone's very concerned and they go and try and find oranges in St. Augustine?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite jokes in the show was... uh, They run out of oranges because Steed has directed the ship's cook to make a 40 orange glaze cake. So he uses all his oranges on this cake.
1: Right. So I I can't say how many 40 orange cakes would have been made by pirate captains, but certainly certainly the risk of scurvy and other diseases was very real in the Mm -hmm. 18th century Caribbean, uh, especially Mm -hmm. on board ships. So that is very historically accurate. The rest of it, I think, like, so things like um, the treasure map, right, is the, sort of, X marks the spot. And it is kind of funny, because even in the show, Blackbeard's character, when they're, you know, because this is at the point when Steed and Blackbeard are beginning to sort of form this romantic relationship. Is that, would you say that's accurate, Lois?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's sort of, like, leading up throughout the season. But I think the the treasure map thing is not just, you know, sort of a pirate plot, but the idea is also that, steed is planning this as a way to make blackbeard happy he thinks it this will, and it, so it's almost like a date that they're going on and 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 blackbeard's
1: response is largely like
0: rolling his eyes like
1: this is so cliche like mm-hmm. real pirates don't do this like kind of thing so it has this kind of self reflective quality in which the, the, the creators of the show are kind of like winking that this is you know, they're, they're, they're making Blackbeard kind of almost look like a hipster pirate, like he's like too cool to be doing this sort of pirate cliche that never really happened. And the, so to answer your question, the X Mart Spot treasure map, I, I'm sure it was used in other literary depictions of piracy from earlier periods. But Treasure Island is, is the sort of genesis of so many popular understandings of piracy. And that's sort of fed, fed into Peter Pan. You know, in this sort of late Victorian period um, and into the 19th century, these are the sort of works that ingrain our sort of modern cliches of piracy into popular culture, right? They make it really legible. They make this sort of very diffuse canon of piracy, sort of things like Buccaneers of America and the General History of the Pirates, which are sort of these like compendiums from the early 18th century and 17th century. The sort of compendiums of pirate history, sort of like the story of Blackbeard, the story of Calico Jack, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, the sort of female pirates, which we can touch on in a bit if you want. Mm-hmm. These sort of compendiums of pirate history, Treasure Island especially interprets those earlier works that are sort of historical, but also heavily fictionalized um, and makes them sort of like accessible for a popular audience
0: again in the Victorian period. Right. One thing that stands out to me about popular media on piracy is that it has such a long history of being a popular fictional genre that these tropes have become really deeply ingrained in popular culture. We don't see some of them as much in the show, you know, like hooks for hands and uh, parrots on shoulders and stuff. But, you know, I think audiences would kind of expect that. I do think you make a good point that the show is sort of playing with some of these tropes, right? It's not necessarily buying into all of them wholesale. Like the pirates know that treasure hunting is not likely to result in much treasure. Everyone but but Steed kind of knows that. Things like that in the in the series. I think they're, they're often, and we'll touch on a couple more of them later.
1: And our fascination with pirates goes, you know, in popular culture, like goes well back into the 17th century, right? There's ballads that are written about, sailors who were captured by the Barbary Corsairs so North African pirates/ slash privateers and then they they run Ronegado so they convert so these these captured English sailors convert to Islam and become sort of rich princes in North Africa right to put this in perspective this is a period in which North African pirates are raiding the coast of England so this isn't this isn't some like distant conflict this is very much the, the lived reality of early modern seafarers, and yet they're still writing ballads about piracy as a route to wealth.
0: Let's talk about the history of gender and sexuality in relation to piracy. I think this is an important theme in the show that anybody who's, you know, seen the series all the way through can recognize that this is, I think, a big important theme in the show. The show suggests that piracy was a context, or at least in in the show's version of history, suggests that Piracy was a context in which queer, romantic, and sexual relationships were more accepted than in mainstream society. Obviously, as I already mentioned, Steed and Blackbeard eventually fall in love, but there are also other examples of queer relationships aboard Steed's ship. Black Pete and Lucius, for example, as well as Oluwande and Jim, the latter of which is non-binary, are a couple of other examples. These characters don't experience much in the way of overt bigotry. The one exception to this is Izzy Hands, who makes some offensive comments. But by and large, the crew is pretty accepting. What do we know about the history of queer relationships and piracy? So first, I'd like to start this off with a caveat.
1: I think it's important to distinguish between the sort of pop culture representations of piracy and actual historical pirates. And I, I remember, so I taught this course last term about the history of piracy, and I come from this tradition of historiography. I consider myself an Atlantic world historian and a Caribbean historian. And that those historiographies are grounded primarily in the history of slavery, which asks a lot of difficult questions about the maritime world and seafaring, and, including pirates, right? Mm-hmm. And I went in with that, that background, and I'm glad I did, because I think it produced some fruitful conversations. However, I think... So we of course it's a course on history of piracy so you cannot t- not talk about pirates of the caribbean. And over the course of the term I increasingly realized that my reaction to pirates of the caribbean was not necessarily my students' reaction to pirates of the caribbean especially those who identified pirates of the caribbean as part of like a queer awakening or part of their own sexual identity, right? And I think that recognizing that it's possible to talk about the history of depictions of piracy as part of a kind of a narrative of or as, as, as part of a, a queer way of storytelling and separating that from the historical reality of piracy. Right. That doesn't make it just because just because it may not be grounded in fact, quote unquote, doesn't make that storytelling less legitimate. That's kind of the caveat I want to put in place. Okay. However. So there's two, there's two ways I'd like to answer this. First of all, I think that the sort of general consensus is that there would have probably been not much more overtly queer sexual relationships on board ships as there were on land, right? I, I think that that is probably true. There may have been slightly more, but not really. I think they probably were generally pretty rare. That's sort of what we would think of as the kind of relationship that, steed and blackbeard have that kind of relationship was probably quite rare however i think so there's one episode i think it's early in the season where everyone is sewing right and steed kind of it's very much an introduction to the series i think because he's giving all these burly sailors this sort of handicrafts project so they can better express their emotions
0: yeah, I really like the flags they come up with. It's one of, it's one of my other favorite jokes in the series.
1: Exactly. And, and, and it's this moment in which they're playing with this idea of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Clearly, right? So this, this is burly pirates who are supposed to be super masculine, super scary, and here they are making handicrafts. I think that there's really an interesting historiography now that's kind of looking at ships as spaces where a lot of different kinds of masculinities are being expressed. Right in the 18th century, for instance, femininity was interpreted as kind of tenderness and associated with sort of delicacy, chastity. That was also a virtue of femininity in the 18th century, right? And so, if you if we if we consider a, sh- a ship as a space that's generally not always, but generally a predominantly masculine space or, or a space that's almost exclusively inhabited by men, what historians have kind of noticed is that the rules that were performed by women on land. So that means things like sewing, cooking, not that men didn't do those things on land, but they were predominantly performed by women on land or deemed to be feminine work on land or being performed by men at sea, right? And I think when they have these guys stitching these flags and in other parts of parts of the series, you see them stitching and doing other kinds of work when the guy's baking that cake, right? He's performing, he's cooking. So you have situations in which men are performing kinds of labor that are traditionally considered feminine, right, hmm. on ships. And so that, that is very much grounded in reality. And, and I think a corollary to that, and this, this, this is where the historiography, I, I think it's where it's heading, but it hasn't quite gone there yet, is the degree to which not just the kinds of physical labor, so sewing, cooking, whatever, were performed by women on ships, but other kinds of feminine virtues like tenderness and delicacy, right? Are those elements that on ships men were also performing, right? And I, my my guess is that, yeah, of course, right? You know, there had to be a kind of emotional labor that was being performed on these ships. There had to be. we, There had to be a way for these men to sort of get along with each other because there were in these confined spaces for months at a time. So there had to be a kind of, emotional awareness on these ships there's just no way that these societies could have functioned otherwise so i do think there is i I, I would be curious and i'm wondering like if there is maybe a little bit more to this kind of what was it what was the phrase you you used people first
0: people positive management style yeah
1: i think i think of course that's absurd but I, i wonder if there is a kind of there is a degree to which that that kind of role had to be performed on a ship right this this management of people and being, having a kind of emotional intelligence on board ships.
0: That's really interesting because pirate ships are consistently portrayed as just kind of a mean and miserable place all the time. Like emotionally, you know, if you watch Pirates of the Caribbean, look at the ships and it's like, well, this seems like it would be a bad place to spend a day very consistently. <laughs> Coming back to the question about queer characters, We also see a non-binary crew member on the ship, Jim. Jim's character is, or at least the introduction to Jim's character, is also sort of a twist on one of these classic tropes in pirate stories, where in the trope, you know, this happens in like Pirates of the Caribbean, for example, a woman stows away on board a ship by disguising herself as a man and later either reveals herself or is discovered to be a woman. In Our Flag Means Death, Jim is wearing a disguise at the start of the show. Jim is wearing a false beard and pretending not to be able to speak. Eventually, people figure out that Jim has been wearing this false beard and pretending not to be able to speak. But when the disguise comes off, Jim asks the rest of the crew to continue calling them Jim. And the crew basically accepts this. You know, I think the crew makes some mistakes about Jim's pronouns and stuff, but by and large, like accepts Jim being non-binary. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about the presence of women and non-binary people in pirate history?
1: Yeah, that's another tough question. I think, again, it's, it's one of these questions of the changing interpretations of what it meant to be a woman stowing away aboard ship, right? Because this was, this is something again, that goes all the way back to those ballads, right? You have, you know, the, English sailor male English sailor has been captured by the Barbary Corsair so his sweetheart goes to sea and tries to rescue him like that kind of thing right mm-hmm. and then even goes back to the Middle Ages Alfhild, the Viking princess right who goes to sea guy and sort of engages in all these kinds of not particularly feminine or non-traditionally feminine activities critically though a lot of the ca- these cases, often the resolution of these sort of early modern depictions of women going to sea, the resolution is often they go back to land and fulfill this sort of feminine role as a wife, right? Uh, that's often the way that this is going. Hmm. And in the case of Jim in Our Flag Means Death, I think the most clear antecedent to that is the sort of Mary Read and Anne Bonny characters who are sort of these famous, probably the most famous female pirates in history and they're made famous by the general history of the pirates, which was an early 18th century depiction of all of the famous pirates that we've heard of, including Blackbeard. And I believe Steve Bonnet too, actually this text, this general history of the pirates is a central feature of the mythology of piracy and Mary Read and Bonnie are two of the most famous characters from that book in part because they were often depicted visually and the depictions of Mary and Aunt Bonnie change over time, but occasionally they're often very salacious depictions, in which sort of a breast is half exposed, or they sort of have long flowing hair, and you know they're armed with a cutlass or a pistol, but they're still a kind of sexualized depiction. And the other the other dimension there too is that they kind of form. This love triangle with Calico Jack Rackham, I believe it's Jack Rackham, uh, Mm. on board his ship. And there is kind of this insinuation that it is, in many ways, a kind of male fantasy of having sort of two women in love with you at the same time and throwing away those sort of domestic constraints of monogamous marriage, right? And that's one of the things that can happen on board the pirate ship. So, in a sense, the stowing away. In the general history of the pirates, and this is an early 18th century text, and that's, I and mean, we'll get into the ways in which that's being reimagined here, but in a way, in the general history of the pirates, and, and so these are women who are leaving sort of the constraints of bad marriages on land, poverty, or whatever, but it, it, it does also contribute to this kind of male fantasy of this sort of love triangle, right? Mm. So that's the general history of the pirates version. However, I think over time, that depiction also leaves room for reinterpretation as at queer or trans history as well, right? So the idea of cross-dressing to stow away on board a ship and to pass, quote unquote, as male in these environments, I think has continues to capture our imagination and is being used in different ways, including on in Our Flag Means Death, right? To tell a, a more modern queer story.
0: That makes sense. I think, and you sort of alluded to this already, but I think that the depiction of queer people and queer relationships in history is very significant because a lot of portrayals of history, including academic history, tends to make an assumption that queer people didn't exist before the mid to late 20th century. And so I think one of the strengths of this show is it represents a challenge to that assumption.
1: Yeah, I think that's very important. And I want to say, to bring it back to my earlier comment about Blackbeard and Steed, I'm not suggesting it for a second that those relationships did not exist. It's rather to say that I I think it'd be a mistake to view ships as these kind of sexually liberated spaces. I think that that would be incorrect. However, I think your point is absolutely well taken that in the 18th century there were romantic relationships between men. That's, you know, very apparent. And though the sort of terminology or the labels that sort of appear in the 20th century weren't used, they were still there. There's still a queer history of the 18th century, right? There's still queer people who existed in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. It's just being attuned to what those relationships look like. So a, a sort of different example, would be the sort of relationships between sailors' wives. And so you have these, you know, it's sort of the classic cliche of like their roommates, right? Of these like women who live on land together for years and years and years and years and have these sort of clearly very intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what do we call that, right? Very few people in the 18th century are going to come out and say it outright that this is a, a lesbian relationship, but clearly they were happening, right? hmm and so that's, that's something to, to stay attuned to as well, right? Just because people in the 18th century aren't going to express it doesn't mean it's not happening. That makes
0: sense. Let's transition a little bit and talk about the history of race and piracy, which is obviously the subject of a lot of your research. I can't recall where I've come across this idea, but I've definitely come across the idea somewhere that piracy was a somewhat more racially egalitarian environment than elsewhere in European and European imperial society at the time, in that a person of color would be treated relatively better within a pirate crew than, I don't know, walking around in a city. or I don't know. Walking right around Kingston, Jamaica, for instance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is sort of reflected in the show, in that Steed Bonnet has a racially diverse crew, and there isn't racial animosity within the crew, uh, certainly not from Steed. We do see examples of racism in the show, but it's always coming from outside the ship. It's always, you know, it's like when they meet some French aristocrats on a different ship, or when they encounter the British Navy. It's never within the crew itself. How does this hold up historically? Was piracy really a more racially egalitarian space than... Elsewhere in society at this time? So one thing that struck me was the kind of flashback
1: episode where Steed is, he's beginning to confront his emotions. I love that we're talking about pirates confronting their emotions, but he's beginning to confront his emotions about abandoning his family, right? Mm -hmm. And there's the scene where they're getting married and his, I think it's his in-laws or his parents get them this wedding gift and it's their two tombstones.
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it
1: says, and it says, you know, Steed, Bonnet, and I can't remember his wife's name. So, so there, there's, they are carved in the sense, but the birth date is Barbados. I think it's 1696 or something like that. But Barbados in 1696, and we we we're aware that Steed is wealthy. We're right. aware that he's a landowner. And to be a wealthy landowner in Barbados in 1696 means you're a sugar planter, right? There's no other way of interpreting that, which means owning and enslaving hundreds of human beings and working them to death on a sugar plantation. Right. That is the genesis of Steed's wealth. And one thing that happens, and this struck me quite a bit. Well, first of all, there's a, there's a couple instances where this struck me when he leaves, he leaves his wife a note saying, you know, all of this land and my vast wealth, I'm leaving to you. Right. Mm -hmm. In the 17th and 18th century Caribbean wealth predominantly even, almost even more so than land, was determined by the number of enslaved people you claimed as your property, right? So wealth was counted in this kind of human property. Mm. And the other thing that struck me was in this really interesting scene where Blackbeard and Steed are sort of becoming friends, he pulls on the little thing, right? And he has this little secret passage that yeah. goes into Steed's backup wardrobe,
0: yeah, his walk-in closet. His
1: walk-in closet, right? He's sort of giving this, he's giving Blackbeard his tour of his sort of extravagant wardrobe and showing off in, in essence, showing off his wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't it's it's hard not to critique the show for not being more self-conscious of the fact that the this wealth that makes Steve this gentleman pirate is fundamentally built on slavery. Right. And I think that 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 is one thing that the show doesn't quite address. One thing that kind of struck me is there's this long history of doing that as well. So I think of like 18th century literature. I'm terrible with literature, so forgive me. And I'm sure any listeners who know this, I'm sure will jump on me for this. But I think of books like a lot of the sort of classics of 18th century literature, like Mansfield Park is the classic example that Edward Said talked about in his work. But Mansfield Park is a, is a novel about the sort of rich country family who owns this extravagant estate in rural England. And as with so many of these estates, the money that built this estate is West India money, right? So West India is being the Caribbean. And so the backdrop, even though it's very mentioned almost exclusively in passing, the backdrop for the wealth that goes into this story that creates this world in which these people are having these conversations about courtship or whatever is fundamentally based in Caribbean slavery. Mm. And to some extent, I do think that's also true of our flag means death. I think they're a little more self-conscious about it, but it is also true. Like the ship who paid for the ship, who paid for the clothes, who paid for the escargot spoon, right? Like it's, it's Mm. all of this stuff is built on that wealth. So I know that doesn't quite answer your question of was piracy a more accepting world, but I think that's an important thing to understand about the Caribbean in the 18th century. And if I could, I think there's one other thing that we need to understand about the representations of piracy that are problematic. I'm thinking in particular of Pirates of the Caribbean. And I think that this show, I'm really hoping if they do a second season, I I think they will, I really hope they do, because it is actually an opportunity to address. I think they have the tone and they have the right actors and the right people making this show to address this issue. So I don't think it's a lost cause. However, I do think it is sort of continuing in the tradition of Pirates of the Caribbean in this crucial respect, in that Pirates of the Caribbean, so anyone who's taught Caribbean history uh, will know that your students, when they enter your course, a lot of the time in North America, especially white students will enter your course thinking that that's the depiction of the Caribbean, of Caribbean history that they're most familiar with as Pirates of the Caribbean, right? which is this fun romp that depicts the 18th century the Caribbean as this kind of fun place full of adventure and magic. And there's no real suggestion that racism is an issue or that, that the dominant social form of social organization in this world is one of slavery. And I think that that, what that has done is made Caribbean history palatable. It'd be grotesque and absurd to write, I think, a history about the U.S. South, right? Or write write a story about the U.S. South, almost like Gone with the Wind, right? is a a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, That kind of sanitizes this history. And I think that we are still not confronting Caribbean history as something that really needs to be addressed. And I think Mm. part of the history of piracy and the the history of the depiction of piracy is in part an effort to sanitize Caribbean history and make it consumable and make it palatable for white North American audiences.
0: That's a really interesting point. I think that makes a lot of sense. It does seem like a stark omission in the show to not talk about slavery at all. You know, I understand that the show is intended to be a, lighthearted show and that slavery is not a funny topic, but it's such a fundamental piece of Caribbean history in this period that not having it at all is very strange as a historian. How did slavery relate to the history of piracy specifically then? You mentioned earlier that the British Navy, sometimes when it captured ships, it would sell black members of the crew as enslaved people. Was this also a part of piracy and slavery? Were there enslaved people on pirate ships? Can you tell us a little bit about this relationship?
1: Yeah, I think that that's something that changed over time. And in part, it changed as piracy changed. And within these sort of legal variations of piracy, I do think there is possibility that there was a slightly different attitude. So if we take the sort of classic Golden Age pirate, which Steve Bonnet and Blackbeard in this case are representing, often, including in academic historiography, these ships are being represented as a kind of counterculture. And, and some scholars actually use that word, counterculture, mm. and a kind of microcosm for rebellion against the social, economic, gender, and sexual norms of land-based society in the 18th century, which was intensely capitalistic, racist, and patriarchal. Right. And I think that's part of what the show is playing with, right? Like it is playing with the pirate ship as this counterculture. I tend to think that in general, that view of piracy as counterculture was produced in large part by the general history of the pirates, which is the source I've kind of talked about a couple times, including with the Mary Read and Anne Bonny example, mm-hmm. So insofar as Mary Reed and Aunt Bonnie represent a kind of departure from female domesticity on land, I think that this sort of pop culture representation of these women representing a departure from the sort of domesticity of marriage on land, for instance, it is also taken to suggest that maybe if the sort of gender dynamics of society were turned upside down on pirate ships, or another good example, is the distribution of prizes, right? So a prize is a captured ship, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. pirate ships very famously had sort of very egalitarian ways of deciding who got shares of prizes. Whereas, Mm -hmm. so in the Navy, for instance, an officer, because Royal Navy ships also captured prizes, an officer would get, you know, many times more than the sort of average sailor, which created sort of reinforced land-based hierarchies because officers were usually gentlemen and sort of ordinary sailors were working-class people right and so pirates pirate ships are also taken to sort of reflect an inversion of that strict economic and class hierarchy as well and i think that historians i think have also suggested that there were inversions of racial hierarchies 18th century racial hierarchies on pirate ships and it's important to note as I was saying a minute ago, in the 18th century Caribbean, the dominant form of social organization was one of slavery. Scholars use the term slave societies. So Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, these are slave societies in which the relationship of slavery is the dominant form of social organization. And so there is an idea that perhaps pirate ships created an environment in which more racial equity would have been possible. I don't think that that's impossible. I think, I think it's important to, to preface what I'm about to say with this caveat. I don't think it's impossible that pirate ships had, especially those that were already, like they had no, they weren't pretending to be privateers. They were full on pirates. They were like, forget land. We are going to be at sea and, you know, we're going to reject all land-based hierarchies. And I think those pirates, that, that kind of pirate ship did kind of exist. Like, I think that is grounded in some kind of historical reality. I think it is possible that on those ships, there may have been avenues for greater equity. However, there's two major issues with that. The first one is the nature of predation in the 18th century Atlantic world. And by predation, what I mean is when pirates and privateers in the Royal Navy, all three of them are after ships, they're trying to capture ships, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're after the big Spanish galleons full of gold. Those are great. but By and large, most of the prizes that pirate ships and privateers are taking are carrying sugar or indigo or tobacco, which are plantation crops. Yeah. So even if pirates have this parasitic relationship to land-based society, right, even if they are rejecting land-based society in a sense, their wealth is still generated from plundering the products of land-based societies. Mm-hmm. So they still are interwoven with that economy, in a sense, even if it's a parasitic relationship. Mm-hmm. And the other really important thing to keep in mind is that pirates were after primarily, and this is the whole thing that Blackbeard is trying to teach Steed, right? Is this is what pirates do, that we're after plunder, we're after booty. Yep. And the 18th century, in the 18th century, as I was saying a minute ago, when I was talking about Steed's Barbadian origins, the primary way in which people measured wealth in the 18th century Caribbean was through the ownership, was by claiming property in human beings. And I think it's incredibly unlikely that if a pirate captured a slave ship, for instance, that they would set those people free. To me, that goes against the entire culture of maritime predation. Instead, if, you, if you're using this logic of the market in which these guys, especially someone like Steve Bonnet, who was a plantation owner, they see a world in which a slave ship, which could carry up to 500 people who are being transported into slavery in the Caribbean, this ship is worth a fortune, right? This ship is worth, you know, many, many times their wildest dreams of in terms of wealth. Mm-hmm. And so not only not only do they have the financial incentive, the financial incentive in the world in which they live is to reinforce the enslavement of those captives, of those African captives who they're taking on board the slave ship, but also the kind of profit sharing things, the kind of profit sharing mechanisms that pirates and also privateers had, made it so that even if a captain, and this is, there's no evidence this, that this ever existed, but even if there was a captain who wanted for whatever reason to free captives that could have been sold as slaves. Even if there was a captain who wanted to do that, his crew would be like hell no. We are entitled to this prize, right? We are entitled to a share of this prize, and we have to sell it, right? And that includes human beings. The exceptions, and this is this is where I think the the exceptions come in, and the exceptions might have come when a pirate ship perhaps was low on manpower and they needed to bring in new crew members, that certainly would have happened. If they were trying to bring in new crew members, they might sort of coerce black captives to join their crew. That certainly would have happened. But by and large, I think pirates would have seen African descended captives in the same way as the Royal Navy or privateers. And that was primarily
0: as plunder. And that's, a contrast from the show's, obviously from the show's depiction generally, where there's no depictions of slavery, but even, there's a scene, or the, one of the episodes, the pirates visit this like French aristocrat ship, and a couple of the black crew members set up this scam where they rip off the French aristocrats, and then they end up destroying the ship, but they sort of set free the, the French quote-unquote servants, they're not referred to as enslaved people in the show, they're servants. And they distribute what they've taken to those servants as a sort of a reward for being, like, hardworking people, which sounds like, even though in this scene there's some, like, racial solidarity happening between those those crew members and the, the servants, it seems like maybe an unlikely real-world happening.
1: That's an interesting example. But in the cases where I've seen... Black sailors were certainly engaged on privateers. It was very common. Sometimes up to a third of the crew, sometimes more on board privateers would have been made up of black sailors. But we have to remember that, you know, if I'm a black sailor on board a privateer and I'm maybe a lot of these men would have been enslaved, right? They would have been hired out as laborers on board a ship and they would have still been in slave status while they were serving on board these ships. So their incentive, like their white crewmates, may also have been to traffic black captives as slaves. So as perverse as that logic is, I think we have to be aware that this system was not one that would have easily bred solidarity of that kind. And the other really important thing to note is, from my research on privateers is that you do see a lot of cases in which, and I think this probably translated to pirate ships as well, because it certainly translated to the Royal Navy, in which black sailors on board ships were often put into subordinate roles. And a lot of those time, a lot of the time, we talked about the kinds of work that low-status sailors would have performed was often considered women's work on land, right? Yep. I want to come back to this because there's there is an interesting historical parallel with sailors cross-dressing and these sort of low-status sailors being put in all these kind of interesting positions. But very often, black sailors would have been cooks. They would have been personal servants. They would have been musicians. It was very common to have a black drummer or a trumpeter on board a ship. Or in other cases, they would have worked in very difficult tasks like pumping the bilge, which was an extremely labor-intensive and extremely unpleasant task that white sailors would not have wanted to do. So many of the times, even when we're talking about black sailors who are joining a pirate crew, for instance, they may have been forced to do that kind of work as well. Mm -hmm. So before we start imagining this world in which, you know, ships bred a kind of racial openness, I do not think that was likely. I think it was far more likely that white sailors did what they could to protect their privilege, right? Right even though white sailors were often brutalized, they were often impressed, they were endured dangerous work conditions and physical, brutal physical punishments. I think they still, they had one thing going for them and that was their whiteness. And they were eager to protect that. And I think that they often, shipboard hierarchies reflected white sailors, even working, sort of working class white sailors' interest in protecting their white privilege At the expense of their black crewmates who they often forced into more difficult or lower status forms of work.
0: Those are really important things to think about as we watch this show, watch Pirates of the Caribbean. That's definitely a a strong contrast with how these shows talk about race. I want to transition now and talk a little bit about the period of the show. The show is set in the year 1717, which is during what is known as the Golden Age of Piracy. This is a period of about 50 years from the late 17th through the early 18th centuries. And this is the period that the public tends to most associate with pirates. Can you talk a little bit about this Golden Age of Pirates? What causes it to begin and why does it come to an end?
1: Well, so the Golden Age of Piracy is... I think in part, again, a product of the General History of the Pirates. It is in part made so famous because of this kind of flamboyance of the characters depicted in the General History of the Pirates, which was published in the early 18th century. So that's a big part of it. It's also a period in which newspapers are becoming more common, especially in the colonial United States, or what would become the United States, so the colonial North America and in England. So you have a reading public that's very eager, a growing reading public that's very eager for stories of these kind of flamboyant sea raiders, right? So this period also coincides with those developments. So that's an important caveat. However, speaking of periodization,
0: uh, what was the what was the beginning ter- year you used? I said that I just said the late 17th century, but I think when I saw, looked online, it. The claim was like 1680 approximately. Sure.
1: Yeah, there's a couple different date ranges that are given. In general, I think the the sort of buccaneers, so we tend to think of buccaneering. So buccaneers are very similar to pirates, although historiographically and I think historically, in my opinion, they're not quite the same thing. So the buccaneers were in the 17th century. So when we think of Henry Morgan, for instance, the famous Captain Morgan, who was the most famous probably the most famous of the Buccaneers. He operated in the mid, mid-17th century and also a plantation owner, by the way, and an evil
0: dude. Shouldn't be that surprising given the rum thing. Yeah,
1: exactly. And a lot of these guys, were, while they were exciting characters, were also horrible people. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be the kind of era of Buccaneering. Buccaneers didn't think of themselves as pirates. They generally thought of themselves as privateers, which is this word we've used a couple of times. Yep. And they usually had some kind of license to commit their predations. And generally they were attacking the Spanish. So up until the sort of mid 1600s, the Spanish empire was by far the dominant imperial power in the Caribbean. And essentially the British French and the Dutch, the English French and the Dutch in this period show up and they're, they have this kind of parasitic relationship to the Spanish empire. And they are, Colonial governors are basically constantly issuing privateering licenses to guys like Henry Morgan to go attack the Spanish and take all their gold, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a sort of 17th century model for what we're talking about. Things begin to change in the 18th century as the plantation economy in places like Jamaica, Barbados, uh, Saint-Domingue, which is modern-day Haiti, begins to take off. There is a greater emphasis on placing some boundaries on the kind of sea predation that was happening in the 17th century. So Imperial governors realized that, you know, these guys were useful, like buccaneers were useful in the 17th century, but really we should probably try and rein this in because they're, they risk destabilizing the plantation system, the sugar plantation system. That's really taking root in this period. And between 16, uh, 16, 89 I think. In 1689 and 1713, you have a series of wars between England, France, Spain and the Netherlands in which privateers are being licensed to attack each other's shipping and there's this big privateering war, right, in the Caribbean. But around 1713 after the war ends, the war of Spanish succession is the last in the series of wars. When the War of Spanish Succession ends, you have all of these privateers who are suddenly out of a job, right? And there's this whole economy in places like the Bahamas, for instance, which are sort of peripheral settlements in the Caribbean. They have, by peripheral, I mean they haven't developed a full-scale plantation economy, and they exist. They exist largely to feed or to supply and profit from the activities of privateers, right? So there's this whole infrastructure of privateering that not only includes ships and sailors and stuff, but also markets and an economy based on sea predation that's not going to disappear overnight. So in large part, the golden age of piracy refers to this period after 1713, where all these privateers who had been raiding the Spanish legally are now basically continue to do it, but illegally. And... Imperial authorities are becoming increasingly hostile to this form of sea predation because they realize that it actually is kind of undermining the business interests of the wider empire. So whereas Hmm. buccaneering used to serve the interests of the empire, now it's kind of less clear. And these guys who would have been in the 17th century called buccaneers are now being called pirates.
0: Hmm. So why does this come to an end then?
1: Well, so I think... I think in part, I think legitimate trade, quote, unquote, legitimate trade begins to pick up again. I think that that's, an, that's a neglected part of the story. A lot of historians have pointed to the establishment of piracy courts. So the, the vice admiralty court system, which is the court system that I study, begins to take real form in the early 1700s. And these are courts that have, although it's extremely difficult to convict a pirate. Steve Bonnet actually was one of the few who was convicted mm. in South Carolina by a guy, I think his name is Nicholas Trott and and Mark Hanna in his book. If anyone is interested in this topic, Mark Hanna's Pirate's Nest in the British Empire is is fantastic and he deals with this at length. But Nicholas Trott, who's a sort of functionary in South Carolina, is one of the few people who knows the law well enough to try a pirate. And so there's a growing infrastructure of courts that are capable of trying pirates and equally important are increasing numbers of Royal Navy warships mm-hmm. that are powerful enough to destroy a pirate ship. Mm-hmm. The British empire sort of finally has the tools to clamp down on piracy. So there's that sort of okay. stick element. And then the other element is the carrot. So there's the growth of this sort of legitimate trade. There's a series of pardons and also privateering becomes more, becomes better regulated. And privateers are allowed. There's legislation that's passed in 1708, I think, that allows privateers to keep the entirety of their plunder. So before they had to pay like 10% or whatever to the crown, but now they're allowed to keep all of it. And so with the renewal of war, especially in 1739, they have their job back. They can go back to plundering French and Spanish shipping, right? So, so it never quite goes away, it just sort of morphs into these different forms.
0: You mentioned there. Steve Bonnet is tried, is hanged. And I do want to ask you very briefly about the characters, Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard. They are obviously based on real people. We've already talked a little bit about, especially Steed Bonnet, and how his slaveholding background is really omitted from the show. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about how their depiction in the show relates to the historical reality. I mean, obviously, like, Steve Bonnet in the show, extremely silly. And, like, Blackbeard silly. Blackbeard is, I think, less silly than Steve Bonnet, but still kind of silly. And I assume the real people weren't that silly. But comment on their depiction. Did you think there were some elements of it that sort of stood out to you as, like, oh, yeah, that's sort of based in their real people or some of it more made up?
1: Well, I, I, again, I we know very... Steve Bonnet actually might be an exception to this. I don't, I don't really know the trial that well, but Steve Bonnet, his trial was actually widely reproduced, Hmm. and I think we can learn a little bit about him from his trial. Although I don't, I don't know much about his personal qualities. Sure, but sort of again, the kind of the caricatures that these guys, that Taika Waititi and uh, Riz Darby are embodying, are the very much the caricatures from general history of the pirates. Mm-hmm. And that includes so probably the most famous example of this is Blackbeard, right? Who has this habit of wearing lit fuses under his hat, right? So when 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 they're talking when they're first talking about, I think it's um, is it Black Pete?
0: Yes, Black Pete.
1: Black Pete is telling this story about how he was he was Blackbeard's like number one guy, right?
0: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: And he's 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 talking about how his face was always shrouded in smoke. That is actually from the general history of the pirates, whether or not Blackbeard actually did that kind of doesn't matter. You may well have done, He may well have lit fuses under his hat Mm -hmm. to create this fearsome image, but that is clearly drawn. The the creators of the show are clearly drawing that from the way he's depicted in the general history of the pirates. Mm -hmm. And to that point though, I do think like these two characters, this is really quite interesting because they do have this kind of steed as this kind of, Foppish gentleman, right? And Blackbeard as this kind of brutal, violent killer have a kind of grounding actually in the history of piracy and prize taking more generally. And because it is this kind of carrot and stick approach, right? If you're a pirate, you don't really want to go blowing up every ship you capture. The logic, mm-hmm. you're trying to get as much plunder as you can get with the minimal amount of effort. Gunpowder's expensive, right? and you don't wanna damage your plunder. So you're gonna try and use intimidation as much as possible. So if Blackbeard did in fact, and this is why it's plausible that Blackbeard did in fact adopt these kind of crazy costumes or the flags are another good example. These kind of ornate flags that pirates are supposed to have used. There is good reason to suspect that, may, that they may have actually done this because they're trying to intimidate their prospective victims. Conversely, I think the Steve Bonnet being the kind of gentleman pirate actually also has a resonance with the history of prize taking because yes it's good to be fearsome and so terrible that everyone's so afraid of you that you're gonna you know do all these horrible things to you but at the same time if they think that you're just going to come on and kill them all if you think they think you're going to come on board your ship and do all these terrible things to them they're there might put up a bit more of a fight right right so if you're steed it also serves to have a crew because you know few merchant ship sailors are they're not going to die for their you know employer if they don't have to so they're they're more than willing we're not more than willing, but they're often willing to surrender to someone who's you know puts a has a people first approach i guess (laughs) yeah
0: i feel it's an interesting adaptation because i feel like a lot of kids like certainly for me i think this is true especially for boys a lot of like one of their sort of introductions to learning history is like I'm going to learn about all the famous pirates or learn about pirate ships or you know stuff like that so is an interesting it's interesting to see like some of that stuff sort of resonate but also adapted in a very different way the characters are goofy even Blackbeard who's scary is also goofy is there anything else about the show that you wanted to mention before we start to wrap up we didn't get to or about Caribbean history
1: no I think I think that your 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 point there I think is well taken that that there is I think that's part of the endurance of piracy as a fascination for us. I think the comp- the comparison that always springs to my mind is kind of the cowboy, right? Yes. And I think there is something about the history of masculinity in which I think men want to imagine themselves in these kinds of adventurous roles and that's that's exactly what this show is playing with the steve bonnets desire to to sort of embody this adventure right and i think that that that's part of what draws us to the history of piracy even if it's rooted in all these other horrible things it still draws mm-hmm. us to it right and the, the, the history of cowboys is similar right it's it is rooted in the dispossession that went along you know with the conquest of the West and, and the genocide of indigenous peoples, right? But yet still, we always come back to the Western as this sort of trope of modern masculinity, in a sense.
0: Yeah, I did an episode of this podcast recently about The Revenant, and we talked a bit about how there was this genre of popular stories, especially for boys, from the early 20th century, late late 19th, early 20th century, that were all about these rugged Western outdoorsmen. You would think about Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, Hugh Glass, the protagonist of The Revenant. And in a lot of ways, this is sort of like a, it's like almost part of like a masculine education, I guess, or or an education in masculinity for boys is like you read these stories. And it's the same with Pirates where you, you know, you sort of read the biographies of Blackbeard and Henry Morgan and all these characters. And I think that's a very common experience. From a historian's perspective, what was your favorite thing about the show? And the flip side, if you could change one thing about the show, what would it be and why?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I'm going to start with the second part first. Uh, That's a tough question. I think depictions of slavery in film and TV have often, or I've always, basically always been very problematic and very difficult. And uh, Hollywood and other outlets have generally done a very poor job of doing that well and i do think that partially i think it is just like the subject matter itself does not lend itself to that kind of storytelling right it's very difficult to tell the story of slavery if you're doing this it's i would say it's probably impossible to tell the story of slavery if you're doing this kind of fun romp that's kind of a satire
0: right certainly it would not be possible to do an appropriate version exactly
1: yeah yeah. that's yes exactly Even though, you know, there is this scene, there is this episode where they're kind of on this indigenous, which is kind of cool. And we didn't have time to talk about, but there is this kind of uh, episode on the island where they're engaging with indigenous communities. But even that, I don't think can really quite satisfy the requirements, I think of, or or, or to put it differently. I, I don't think even that can really, the genre cannot really comprehend the kind of story that really is going on here the genre cannot grasp the magnitude of human suffering that produced this world that sounds dramatic but it's true right and it's it's the same of the western right the genre if we're going to have cowboys as protagonists cannot capture the degree of dispossession that went into the creation of that world so that is that is an important issue and so that's what i would say is you know, it's not so much what I would change, but I think it is highlighting, pointing at that limitation that I, I just don't think. I think they could do a better job, and I think there are. I hope they do, and I think they can do more to discuss the issue of of race and slavery and do it responsibly. I think they can do that. However, I do think there is this fundamental limitation that they're just, they're just you just can't overcome. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. I think they can do better for season two, maybe. What I did like about the show and I think you were right to highlight this, and I, I was going to ask you why you wanted to talk about the show, what, what stirred you to, you know, invite me on here to talk about it. I think what struck me is in that that first or second episode when they're sewing those flags, mm-hmm. and there is this moment where, that they're using this story as a vehicle to talk about these masculinities in such a interesting way that I think is valuable and I think is interesting. And as historians, recognizing that, You know, though we have this kind of like monolithic image of, and this is just springing to my mind now, but we had this monolithic image as like sailors as these kind of tough guys who didn't express their emotions. I I honestly, I'm I'm thinking of this admiral who who I was dealing with, who I'm writing about right now. And he showed up in Jamaica, right? And when he showed up in Jamaica, the governor supposedly gave orders that they weren't supposed to salute him by firing a cannon from the fort. And this guy threw such a hissy fit through such a through such a fit that this that he wasn't being properly you know received or whatever, and he you know wrote all these angry letters to the governor and it just created this ridiculous exchange, but that I think is more reflective of early modern masculinity this kind of really kind of vulnerable fragile man than the kind of tough guy guys and I think that that's something that the show sort of a lot might allow us to talk about a little more.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean I thought it was an interesting show. The reason I asked you to do it. It was just that frankly, it was a show that I was watching. And I was like, this seems like an interesting show to cover. I had watched like, I think, three or four episodes at that point. Or maybe, maybe just a couple, but I was like, you know, it's interesting to talk about a comedy, which I, I hadn't done on the podcast before. And I think there's some interesting historical themes here about, you know, history of piracy. And at that point, you know, the early episodes, some of the themes about gender and queer history are not as strong as they become later in the season. So at the time I approached you, I I didn't actually know that that was going to, you know, be a big part of our conversation. But I'm glad that that was included in the show, because I think that's a really, like, interesting and rich topic. And, you know, the show is, is like a really important piece of, like, queer culture right now. Uh, you know, it's, I think, an important part of, like, queer historical representation. So I I know that obviously there are some issues with the history in the show, as you mentioned, but I also think, you know, there's some things the show does well.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I know you're continuing to do this podcast and I really hope that that's something like, you know, as we're sort of hearkening back to the interview you did about The Revenant, I'm hoping that maybe if you go, that you go on to talk about, you know, other products of queer history and that this conversation can maybe serve as because I'm a, obviously I'm not a queer historian I'm not a queer historian and I don't study queer history you know I don't want to speak as an authority on that however I do think we can lay down some of the context right and we I do you know I do think we can lay down some of the issues strengths and weaknesses on the show right so hopefully that can sort of pave the way for some future conversations that you're able to have
0: yeah for sure I'll ask this did you like the show <laughs>
1: I did yeah I did it's it's hard not to like Taika Waititi
0: and Rhys Darby they're so charming it is a very funny show. I thought it was very funny. I, I enjoyed watching it. If you want to have a have a laugh, I think it's, it's worth a watch. And the like, I think the romance feels like very genuine. I think it's a well-told story that is funny, but also endearing. So I, I definitely encourage people to check it out. Keep in mind, you know, some of the themes we've mentioned here uh, as well. But Chris, this has been really fun chatting with you. Thank you very much for joining me. Do you have any social media pages or projects you're working on, or anything that you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: Uh, I, I nothing nothing at the moment, but you know you can find me on Twitter.
0: <laughs> if you, if you're gonna offer the class on history of piracy again, people should check that out. People should take your class.
1: I think a lot of departments are moving towards offering that kind of course, mm-hmm. which they should. I think it's a good, it, it was really it was a really interesting course and a really good opportunity for me to learn and to get students engaged with early modern history. If I were an undergrad, I would love to take
0: a course on the history of piracy. Well,
1: it's funny because I actually took this exact course
0: as uh. an undergraduate.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I took the course and the, the the instructor was on sabbatical. So they were like, who can we get to do this?
0: Now the student has become the master. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Liz. That is it for today's interview. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Chris for joining me. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I've included some book recommendations in the show's description. And if you'd like to see some historical images related to our conversation today, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you share it with someone you know. For a podcast of this size, telling a friend makes a huge difference for growing the audience. And if you'd like to leave a review for the show, that's also a big help. I'd love to hear what you thought of our conversation, so leave me a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Feel free to send me suggestions for future topics, too. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his novelty orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history.